All right, if you're grabbing coffee, come on back. We're going to get rolling into the Word. I'm happy today. You can tell because I'm wearing this shirt. But I'm, I'm happy because we are just rolling into uh, a time in the next many weeks where we're just... Uh, marching our way through the book of Colossians. And I know that you all will be blessed by it uh, because it's such a meaningful, power-packed letter that does justice to the gospel and uh, illustrates it well. So I'm excited. Um, Yeah, if you're new, uh, what we typically do here at Calvary the Hill is we are working our way through a book of the Bible Usually, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we'll, we'll often take uh, breaks for a month or so at a time, but, but for the most part, that's how we do things around here. And the reason is because we're grounded in God's Word, and we want to know what He says about everything. <laughs> and the best and easiest way to do that is to be in His Word and to let His Word guide uh, what we're thinking about, what we're meditating on. And so we're going to do that this morning. Uh, Why don't you grab your Bible, uh, open up to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We're going to read through verse 8. And uh, if you're grabbing the Pew Bible, which you're welcome to do, it's on page 983. And once you're there, whether it's by phone, by Pew Bible, or by your own Bible, go ahead and stand up, and we will read the passage for this morning. All right, go ahead and just follow along while I read, starting in verse 3 of Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You can keep standing while we pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Spirit. And this morning we get to join Paul in thanking you for the gospel. Thanking you that the gospel has reached us. We ask this morning that you would make the gospel sparkle again as it should in our eyes. Make it shine so that we look at it afresh and are refreshed. Lord, the gospel is not the A, B, C of Christianity. It is the A through Z. And may we grow deeper in our understanding of it this morning and how it affects areas of our life that we have been holding back. 
We give this time to you, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. This morning, we are reminded what gets the Apostle Paul out of bed in the morning. Last week, we talked a little bit about Colossae, the city where Paul is writing to here in 60 A.D., Paul is in prison in Rome. Colossae is across the water over in ancient Turkey. And we learned a little bit last week that Colossae, at the time of this writing, it was an insignificant city. And Paul had never been there. And he had never met most of these people. And yet, Paul writes them a letter of encouragement. Why is that? You know, it's pretty simple, and we are introduced to it here. Paul is thankful that God brought the gospel somewhere that he had never been. Paul knows that he himself, Paul the Apostle, has been chosen out of all the humans on earth to be a significant part of the beginning of Christianity reaching the nations. You know, it started in Jerusalem. It spread to Judea, Samaria, and Jesus said it needs to go to the ends of the earth. And Paul was going to play a big part in that. And yet, just as we saw in the book of Philippians, if God wants to use others to help accomplish this mission, especially while he's in prison, Paul's totally cool with that. He says, as long as the gospel is going out, that's all that matters to me. And so, what we have here in the letter of Paul to the Colossians is a first century Greco-Roman letter. And it actually, from a bird's eye view, looks a lot like the ancient letters of that time. It's almost like he had Microsoft Word and he went through the templates and he picked one. Because this is basically templated from the culture. And typically, it would start with a greeting, just like we saw in verses 1 and 2. Who's the author? Who are the recipients? And then it would move into a thanksgiving. And that's what we start with today. But instead of thanking a litany of Greek and Roman gods, Paul thanks one God. The the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He Christianizes this template. He does this in most of his letters, thanking God for the work that he is doing in those he's writing to, through those he is writing to. And he always tailors these prayers to the themes that he will break down as the letter goes on. And so, for this letter, the biggest theme is being a temptation for this church to sprinkle in other forms of spirituality that supplement the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he opens his prayer by thanking God, ultimately, for the gospel. And this is what our series in Colossians is all about, the pure gospel. So what is the gospel? Is it Jesus plus nothing? Yes, but what about Jesus? 
It helps if we actually define the word, gospel. It comes from a Greek word, evangelion. It means good news, good tidings. And it's tied, it's always tied to a historical event. It's concrete. It's not abstract. The word was borrowed from the culture and was actually a political word. There is an ancient inscription right around the time when Jesus was born that refers to Caesar Augustus' birthday as the beginning of the gospel, it says. And it refers to him as the Savior. Doesn't that remind you of someone else? And right around the same time, in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, you can throw that up on the screen, Luke writes that the angel said to them, this, this is the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Same word, but verb form. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And so the writers of the New Testament co-opted this political term, good news, to refer to the person of Christ, the person of Jesus. But Paul, he gets a little bit more specific with the word gospel. Now, it's not just the person of Jesus, but it is also what he accomplishes that Paul refers to as the gospel. Go ahead and throw up 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And this, he's getting into the nitty-gritty of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So for Paul, it was important to connect what Jesus did with the prophetic writings of the Hebrew scriptures. So what is the gospel? All right, one more reference. Listen to how Paul defines it in his letter to another of his pastor friends, Titus. And he uses the same synonym for the gospel that he uses here in verse 6. As you can see, it says, it says uh, you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So that's a synonym Paul is using in our passage this morning for the gospel. So in Titus 2, he writes, For the grace of God, a.k.a the gospel, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The gospel, according to Paul, 
is everything that God is doing in Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. All of these are aspects of the gospel. And so that's why I can confidently title our series in Colossians, Jesus plus nothing, because the good news is all wrapped up in Jesus. And Paul is thanking God that this gospel, this concrete gospel, this political term applied to the Son of God come in the flesh, he's so glad that it has arrived in Colossae, even without his help. And he goes on to further describe a few aspects of this gospel for us that we might look at the gospel and be amazed again. So firstly, we find in verses 3 to 5 that the gospel brings transformation. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And so we see that for Paul, the gospel isn't just about historical information, although it has historical information attached to it. And you should never disconnect the gospel from the fact that Jesus died in history was buried in history, rose from the dead in history. This actually happened. But that's not all. It's not just about information. It's about transformation. This historical event invites a response from us. And the trifecta of Christian virtues are on display here. Faith, love, and hope. You've heard those elsewhere across the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain faith, hope, and love. You can throw up 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So faith, love, and hope, these aren't just terms for cheesy Christian bumper stickers. We observed how the gospel is not just an abstract reality, but a concrete reality. What Jesus did happened in real human history. He had a real body that was really killed and really resurrected. Our faith is in something concrete. And the faith that Paul talks about here is simply our part in this process. We put our faith or trust in what God actually did. We don't put our faith in a a pie-in-the-sky optimism. We put it in a God who took action in human history, displaying his faithfulness, and therefore is deserving of our complete trust. And the problem is that in the Colossians' culture and in our culture, we prefer a subjective version of faith. Listen to one author commenting on today's spirituality. You can throw that up. Spirituality 
is no longer true or good because it meets absolute standards of truth or goodness, but because it helps me get along. I am the judge of its worth. If it helps me find a vacant parking place, I know some of you prayed for that this morning, I know I'm on the right track. If it leads me into the wilderness, calling me to face dangers I would rather not deal with at all, then it is a form of spirituality I am unlikely to choose. The reason why this version of spirituality is so attractive is because only the here and now is tangible. If this body and finding happiness in my current circumstances is all there is, then why wouldn't I curate a spirituality that works for me? And notice that this faith that Paul talks about, it doesn't stop at doctrine. You know, this isn't just about head knowledge. The faith Paul applauds in this community spills out into love for one another. You know, just like the faith in a, is in a God who actually did things in history, the love that spills out is equally tangible. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus. You can throw up uh, Jesus' words in John 13. This is the Jesus who said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This care that the Colossians have for one another has traveled many miles all the way to Rome, where Paul is. Their reputation of love and care within this community. That's real love. May we, may our love for one another cause people to rethink their view of the power of the gospel. And then we find that the faith and the hope or sorry, the faith and the love that the Colossians have is because of the hope that they have. Look there again at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. They have faith and they have love because they have a hope. How many of, of those in our, in our spheres do not have hope? This corresponds to this theme of tangibility. You know, just as the faith and love are concrete, our hope is also concrete. You know, we don't just have a generalized optimism that things are going to turn out okay. Look at the news. That doesn't follow. Our hope is concrete. We have a hope that it says is laid up or on hold. Or in old school, uh, if, you know, you're calling a department store. Can you put that on layaway for me? Our hope is on layaway, waiting for us in heaven. And part of that inheritance, which is another word, for this hope that awaits us, that Peter uses, 
Part of that inheritance is what we learned about in, even in Philippians, just a page ago. In Philippians 3, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You know, we can look at our body. We can feel our body and be discouraged that we're going to die. But just as tangibly as we experience the brokenness of our bodies, we will experience the renewal of our bodies. In the new one, the new body that Jesus will give you when he comes again. And that's just part of the hope. That's sort of the selfish part. Yeah, I get a new body. But also you get to be with him for eternity. It's like Cindy quoted Revelation. He will wipe every tear from our eye. It's a real hope that leads to faith in a real God and real love for his people. And so we see that the gospel brings transformation. But it doesn't stop there. We see in verse 6 that this gospel cannot be stopped. This is so amazing. Look at verse 5 going into verse 6. It says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So in verse 6, Paul clues them in to the cosmic situation in which they find themselves. The train of the gospel has left the station. Their small church in an insignificant city is a stop for this cosmic train that cannot be stopped. The cat's out of the bag. The news has been revealed. Titus, it says, this grace of God has appeared. Later we'll see that before it appeared, it was a mystery. The prophets prophesied about it, but they had no clue how it was going to go down. But now it is an open secret. The good news is going everywhere. Why? Because just as the angels proclaimed to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, it is for all people. And so it is going everywhere. Because that's what God wants. And Jesus says the same in Matthew 24. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And so as the apostle to the nations, Paul is acutely aware of the bigness, the the magnitude of this operation, and he wants them to realize it too. The gospel is bigger than their local municipality. The gospel is bigger than the local spiritualities that they're attempted to adopt to have a better life. The gospel is a bigger deal than they realize. 
aren't you so thankful that the global spread of the gospel is a bigger deal than American politics? And a bigger deal than American Christianity's unique struggles? Did you know that there are far more, like a two-to-one ratio of Christians in the majority world which is Asia, Africa, Latin America, than there are in the post-Christian West, North America, and Europe. How does that alter your assumption that American Christianity is the default version of Christianity? Or that our problems are representative of the capital C church? Paul had this big cosmic picture in his mind constantly. And we should too. It gives us some perspective. But he doesn't negate the local growth that's needed either. Did you see that? He says, It is bearing fruit in the whole world and increasing as it also does among you. And so, this bearing fruit and increasing that is going on globally, And it is. It's amazing. And it needs to continue. But then he says, it also does among you. The gospel is a global phenomenon, but it's also a local phenomenon. Here we are, in in sort of the post-Christian West, one of the capitals of the post-Christian West in the region. But we've encountered the gospel. And wouldn't you agree that it needs to continue to bear fruit and increase among us. I dare say it will if we hold on to this faithful God. Remember, this is his idea. He's doing it. And so the gospel can't be stopped. And finally, in verses 7 and 8, we see that the gospel is a collaborative effort. He says in verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So finally, Paul concludes the thanksgiving part of his prayer by commending their founding pastor, Epaphras. And we talked about it last week, but Epaphras likely got saved under the teaching of Paul perhaps in Ephesus, about 120 miles west. But Epaphras was from Colossae. So he comes home and he tells his, his household and his friends and his coworkers about Jesus, and then a church is born. And so Paul commands him, and he calls him a fellow servant or slave, as well as a faithful minister of Christ who is beloved. So he is heaping High praise on this guy. And it shows how much Paul valued other people as part of his ministry. You know, Epaphras was able to go where Paul couldn't and bring the good news somewhere that Paul wanted it to go so desperately. And so Paul's use of words here show his his heart posture of how gospel ministry is supposed to function. You know, take fellow slave. You know, most people wouldn't like that title. But in Christianity, 
to be a slave of Christ is the highest calling imaginable. That's the upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom. You might remember Jesus' words. He, he flipped authority upside down. In Matthew 20, he, write, he wrote, or he said, <laughs> but Jesus called, to them, called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul calls him a fellow slave, and then he says a beloved and faithful minister. You know, that word for minister is the same word for deacon, which in a generic sense just means servant. Epaphras was faithful by teaching the Colossians the same gospel that he had heard from Paul. Notice one last thing about this passage, which displays and confirms this collaborative nature of the gospel. We see each person of the Trinity involved. Way back at verse 1, it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see God the Father is the recipient of Paul's thanks. And then a synonym for gospel is the grace of God. But then we see, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, the object of faith and the very definition of the gospel. And finally, we see the Holy Spirit right at the very end being the one who is empowering this love within this gospel community. And so we see that this gospel is a collaborative effort, and it's not just a collaborative effort for human beings. God modeled this collaborative effort for us. We're just following the example of God, who collaborates within the triune Godhead to make this thing happen. This whole gospel thing, this whole cosmic operation is huge. It's, a, it's taking a ton of work. But remember what Paul is in the middle of doing. Right, right out of the gate, he is giving thanks. You know, this is God's work that he's already doing. We get to participate but we can take a cue from Paul and start with thanksgiving. We can thank God that the gospel, the word of the truth, the grace of God has appeared and reached our ears. We can thank him for the concrete hope that we have in the future appearing of Christ. We can thank him for the love that he stirs and empowers within our community by his Holy Spirit. We can thank him even while we're desperate for him to continue to work in us, through us. We're needy. We need help. The enemy, Satan, does not like the gospel arriving here. 
appearing here, being spread here. Not at all. And so we need, we, we are needy. We cannot do this without God. So let's start with thanksgiving. Let's start with thanksgiving by just looking at the fact that God has allowed and caused the gospel to appear in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, may we go from this place remembering how good we have it. We have it so good. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, we've been called to your side. We've been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are empowered by the Spirit to then walk in freedom. Lord, may our freedom, may our joy, may our love be so curious to those who see us. Lord, may we embody this love that goes through walls and that our community can see and ask why. Lord, empower us as we seek to bring your gospel to those who do not yet ascribe to it. Lord, help us to be able to not just answer people's questions, but question their answers that do not satisfy. So in this time of response, you're welcome to sing. You're welcome to to reflect. You're welcome to confess to the Lord whatever you're carrying. You're welcome to receive prayer. Tiffany and um, blanking. Jarius, are going to come forward. They're available. Come receive prayer. Come receive someone who loves you, care for you. And then communion is set. The table is set. And many of you are aware that another name for communion is Eucharist. What does that mean? It means thanksgiving. And so when we come and we take communion, we're also just saying, Jesus, thank you for doing what I could not do, empowering what I could not do. So we, if you've submitted your life to Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come participate and partake of communion. If you want to give of your tithes or offerings, you can do that online or at the box down here. But let's just spend some time in, in response to the gospel, especially in thanks. Amen.